Hello, my name's Frank and I'm the host of the UFO Thinker podcast. I'd always been mildly interested in UFOs, but like many people, the events of 2017 ignited a fire of curiosity for the UFO topic, which has been raging ever since. I wanted to start a podcast, but initially thought, well, I'm not an astrophysicist, I'm not a fighter pilot, and I've never even seen a UFO. I'm just a normal guy who's interested in this mystery. But that's when a light bulb went off. There are so many other people just like me who are fascinated with this stuff. So why not start a podcast to talk about it from the ordinary guy's perspective? All the BS stripped away, as a few people have said. And let's see if we can get to the truth in all of this. Thanks to everyone who's been on board with the journey so far. It's been amazing to see so many listeners tuning in. And if you're new here, welcome. You can now support the podcast on Patreon with tiers starting from £3 per month. The podcast will always be 100% free, but supporting the show in this way allows me to devote more time and make the show bigger and better. Higher tiers also include special benefits such as being able to suggest episode topics and get merchandise. And I really truly appreciate every listener whether you support on Patreon or not. So now with all of that said, let's get into today's episode. Hello and welcome to the UFO Thinker podcast. My name is Frank and let's get cracking. So another recent events episode today and uh, didn't actually get a chance to do a recent events last week even though there was quite a lot going on because I had uh, an interview uh, for last week's episode with Christopher Sharp of the Liberation Times which if you didn't check that out definitely worth going uh, and having a listen because I thought it was a really interesting conversation and um Liberation Times, definitely a, a website that you should be checking out for UFO and UAP related news. Um, but let's get into the actual events over the last couple of weeks then. So first thing I wanted to touch on is UFO baiting. So this has been uh, something that I've heard discussed quite a lot over the last, I guess, year or a couple of years. Um, Lou Elizondo's kind of hinted at it a little bit and people have followed up with some questions for him. Um, but we don't really tend to get too much information. And there's not been a lot of developments on that front, which I suppose is quite you know, you wouldn't expect it because it's a massive thing. I mean, if the American military have actually undertaken exercises to specifically bait UFOs, so basically trying to put certain things into place to create a scenario where it is more likely for a UAP, uh, probably a better way of putting it, to actually appear and if that was the case then obviously you'd be able to put those conditions into place and then you would be able to you know, basically predict that uh, a UAP would, would arrive in, in the vicinity and then you can study it and try various different things and if that actually is the case it's got massive implications so that's what I mean by UFO baiting. And uh, the kind of updates that have happened over this last couple of weeks were there was an article um, which was based on an, a Twitter thread, actually, uh, which I was kind of watching this thread unfold at the time. And I thought there may have been some some listeners who, who didn't see the thread. And some people I know that listen to the show just aren't even on Twitter. Um, so I wanted to bring this forward so that people can be aware of it. So... 
I actually did pick up on the thread as I say as it was happening and I've been kind of keeping track of, of, of any mentions in general really that the UFO baiting thing gets so when I saw this pop up it was you know quite interesting and um, the the article was by the Hermetic Penetrator and the the whole concept of it is around the efforts to sort of follow up in that area of UFO baiting after the hints which were actually dropped by Tim McMillan in the article that he wrote, which came out actually on the same day as the UAP task force report, which was actually on June the 25th, 2021. And um, the article by Hermetic Penetrator basically says that because of the UAP task force report coming out on that day, there were probably elements of this article which actually um, got missed, basically. And uh, there was a particular uh, paragraph which was highlighted in the article by the Hermetic Penetrator, um, which basically talks about, uh, well, I'll just, I'll just quote the actual bit. So, quote, in 2016, a formal operations plan to address UAP was drafted and submitted through alternative compensatory control measure channels at the DOD. Two persons, I, I being Tim McMillan, because he wrote the article, Two persons I spoke with hinted that a portion of the operations plan may have involved attempts to coax UAP into showing up, potentially involving the object's propensity for showing interest in nuclear materials. However, unfortunately, specific details of this plan were said to be classified and no one was willing to share much more outside of acknowledging that it existed. And he goes on to say in the uh, Hermetic Penetrator article that for some reason nobody has, has followed up on that incredible lead um, since the Tim McMillan piece came out. So he basically decided then to um, go and you know put put the word out amongst some you know well well informed researchers and journalists who work on the UFO UAP issue and see if there's any anybody actually has followed up behind the scenes. So the article then goes on to delve in, into some of the actual tweets sent out by the author to follow up on that kind of breadcrumb trail. And the author actually sent out this tweet with tagging these researchers and so on. And it all basically came off the back of this tweet. So Tom Rogan of the Washington Examiner replied, first of all, and basically corroborated the claims made by uh, Tim McMillan and the reply that he sent on Twitter was basically, um, well, actually, I'll quote it. So, quote, Tim's reporting is correct. It's classified, however, and some of the capabilities employed are extremely sensitive, unquote. So, essentially saying that he has heard the same kind of things as what Tim McMillan has, corroborating the, the initial claims by Tim. And Tim McMillan, by the way, just in case anybody who's listening to this is not familiar, is, is a very, very good source of information on the UFO issue and has got a really good track record of being reliable and consistent and very thorough with his reporting, um, writes for the debrief and was a founder of the debrief as well. Um, so when Tim McMillan writes something, it's really worth taking seriously and the fact that it was backed up there by another source another highly uh, thorough journalist tom rogan um you know makes it even more credible so after a bit of the kind of thread developing 
Tim McMillan actually waded in himself as well and added a bit of follow-up uh, himself. So the, the tweets that he actually uh, added to the thread are as follows. Quote, I wouldn't say anyone was very forthcoming, especially initially, but I also wouldn't say I necessarily had to jump through many hoops. My preference is towards investigative reporting, so I'm constantly talking to people and gobbling up information or pieces of a puzzle. Eventually, you get enough pieces to start forming pictures, and then it's a matter of going back and asking about the picture. It goes on to say, perhaps a good place... To start, in, in tying some of the threads of UFO coaxing would be to look into the National Geospace Intelligence Agency's 2015 global mapping of anti-neutrinos. So that's pretty fascinating, anti-neutrinos. So before we get any further into that, what the hell is an anti-neutrino? <laughs> That's basically what I thought. Uh, so if you were thinking that, I'm glad you asked because I'm about to tell you. Uh, so I, I didn't have a clue. never even heard of what one of these is before. So I heard it being mentioned in this context. So I thought I'd better look into it. So apparently, neutrinos and anti-neutrinos are forms of radiation similar to electromagnetic rays in that they travel at the speed of light and have little or no rest mass and zero charge. They're, they are produced by ultra-high energy particle accelerators and certain types of radioactive decay. So obviously that's pretty complex and you could go into a whole episode of digging into that more basically on, on its own. But that particular bit that I read out is some information that I found on uh, Britannica.com and uh, there's plenty of other information and articles on that website about neutrinos and anti-neutrinos so definitely uh, worth a look. Um, but when you, when you think about that, just from my kind of non-physicist point of view, it certainly seems like if, if these particles originate from either particle accelerators or certain types of radioactive decay, you would certainly think that there's going to be a nuclear connection there. And again, it's something that I'm going to have to look into a lot more, but it's, it's from what I can see so far, it definitely seems like a, an area that we should be looking into. Um, the, these particles arise as a result of radioactive decay, so perhaps there could be a genuine link there of uh, any kind of nuclear power plants any kind of nuclear weaponry is is it possible that these anti-neutrinos originate in those kind of areas and that perhaps could be behind uh, why uap seem to appear in the vicinity of power stations and nuclear weapon silos and things like that so it's definitely an, an intriguing uh, development that and it gives a, a nice little area to, to dig into a lot further in the future and just to finish off on that as well uh, somebody had actually replied to Tim McMillan's tweet saying about anti-neutrinos uh, and asked the question, can the US military artificially generate anti-neutrinos? If they can, would this be the bait that attracts UAP? And Tim McMillan didn't reply, but he did like the tweet. So that definitely seems to be... Um, a very strong indication that that actually may be the thing that militaries around the world but specifically in this case the US military if they have a way of creating a source of anti-neutrinos then that would be a way that you could basically 
coax UAP and then you can then study them and try various different things to understand more about them. So if indeed it has taken place, it's looking very likely that that may be why. So a very interesting development there, one that I'm definitely going to dig into a bit more and I may actually do a full episode on that because it seems like it's going to take a lot more research to really thoroughly understand it and uh, it's worth digging into because it's such a, a fascinating area. So actually just moving on from that to another situation which has to do with UAP and nuclear things um, and in this case as reported actually by Tim McMillan so that's a nice little segue there for you uh, into the next little thing that we're going to talk about which is the uh, quote-unquote drones appearing over some uh, nuclear power plants in Sweden so as reported by the debriefs Tim McMillan quote authorities in Sweden have confirmed a rash of mysterious drone sightings that occurred near several nuclear facilities late last week the Swedish police authority says they have launched a nationwide investigation into the incidents which occurred on Friday January the 14th Officials say they do not know who was responsible for the incursion so far, although sp spokespersons with the Swedish police and Ministry of Defence called the events extremely serious incidents, unquote. So the article goes on to reveal some pretty startling statistics about uh, just generally drone incursions over nuclear uh, power plants in France, the US. So it's clear that this is happening you know, basically all over the world. Um, and it mentions that there was more than a dozen nuclear facilities in France that had uh, unidentified airborne objects uh, assumed to be professional drones. Uh, and that was over a period of, of several months between 2014 and 2015. Nobody knows who's responsible for the incursions, how they're doing it, anything about the drones. Uh, and, and in the United States, there was more than 60 different incidents, apparently, involving, again, you know, quote-unquote drones at 24 different nuclear facilities. And that's from 2015 to 2019. And that's according to a September 2020 report by Forbes. So, round about that same time, French nuclear facilities had their uh, mysterious drone incursions 2014 and 2015 as I mentioned uh, earlier on and in uh, in the US naval aviators said they were frequently encountering you know unidentified aerial phenomena along the eastern coast of the United States so it does kind of rather beg the question or rather a few questions what are these unidentified aerial vehicles I mean, it's a weird one because obviously Stephen Greenstreet gets a lot of grief uh, talking about drones, you know, talking about Stephen Gr Drone Street and things like that, you know. But I, I, I do think it's it's a bit more nuanced really than just like oh it, it's drones or it's UAP. It's it's a weird kind of. Um, it's a weird, tricky area to, to actually get your head around because actually as well, uh, I saw um, Dave Smethurst uh, commenting as well recently, uh, I think it was today, uh, on somebody's Twitter post that the military were actually told to describe these things as drones. So if you're hearing it's a drone, 
it may just be that the terminology that was put into place was to refer to these things as drones and and it may be that they actually are drones but that doesn't necessarily even mean that they were made by humans i mean if there was some kind of off-world craft or you know something not made by human hands it, it could still actually technically be a drone because basically a drone is just an unmanned vehicle isn't it so it's a really kind of a, a tricky area and i do think it's more nuanced than sometimes people uh, assume that it is i mean could it be that an adversary an earth-based adversary like russia or china has created some kind of technology in terms of drones that is way further advanced than what the states has got or the uk has got etc you know maybe that even could be as a result of reverse engineering efforts i mean it's, it's not necessarily um you know a craft even like what what if the i kind of think that there's probably multiple phenomena at play when we're talking about uh ufos uap and what if we're looking at some off-world craft which use some kind of energy source and we're also looking at some kind of atmospheric energy phenomenon as well you know it's not a case of one or the other so it could actually be possible that the the craft, whatever they are, whoever made them, actually use some some elements of that atmospheric phenomena to actually power certain aspects of their tech. Maybe a, an adversary is tapped into that. You know, it's it's a really kind of complex area, and I think when people say, "Oh, it's it might be a drone." that can mean so many things it, who made the drone like what's the drone's objective how is the drone being powered you know it, it's it's not necessarily that we're talking about one of those little quadcopter drones that you can buy from you know electronic stores for a few hundred pounds few hundred dollars whatever and you can just fly it up and you know the, the drones that hobbyists have you know or even professional drones that cost many many thousands we might actually not even be talking about anything like that. What if there's drones that exist that are being used on this planet, which whoever made them are using some kind of advanced technology? You know, it, it's a it's a tricky area to sort of get your head around. And and I tend to think when when people talk about the phenomenon, you know, that that sort of assumes that everything is linked with the things that we're seeing in the sky that we can't explain. And whilst I do think, yes, some things may be linked, it's a bit of a sort of human thing to do, isn't it? To try and draw a thread that runs between all of these unexplained things. And what if there's actually, rather than it being a thread, what if there's multiple separate things going on? We all know about the um, Hesselden uh, phenomena, which is some kind of uh, weird electromagnetic light anomaly which occurs in a Swedish valley. And there's been multiple reports of things like that uh, around the world as well. And there's a possibility that the uh, the, the Colombian uh, strange lights on the mountain that um, uh, Dan and Vinny are going to uh, go and do a documentary about, there's a possibility that that is some kind of unexplained atmospheric phenomenon. Uh, it could be something else entirely, who knows? But it could. Is it, I think it's very possible and worth considering that we could be looking at some kind of unexplained plasma type thing, uh, which is a natural phenomenon that's not necessarily intelligently controlled. And also, as well as that, we could be looking at some kind of advanced technology either made here on earth or off world uh, you know and then even on top of that we could be looking at 
adversarial drones, uh, which use maybe some elements of reverse engineered tech from an off-world vehicle and some kind of elements of that plasma phenomenon. And uh, all of this is kind of important to get, I think, those little nuances. If you look at the Condine report um, by the UK, I'm pretty sure it was the year 2000 that that was published, one of the recommendations from that report is to further study this phenomenon in order to be able to uh, essentially get some new military technology. So uh, I forget the exact wording off the top of my head, but it's basically saying um, we conclude that this is not a threat, but it's worth pursuing in case we can get some kind of advancements in terms of field technology, propulsion technology from the phenomenon. So the Condine report actually confirms that there is definitely something happening there is a phenomenon there or phenomena um, and it's worth looking into to see if we can you know gather any any new intelligence about potential uses for military purposes cloaking and propulsion and, and weapons technologies bearing in mind that report was done 20 years ago so you've got to think that that would have been followed up on and it's very possible that they would have looked into this phenomenon more behind the scenes, not acknowledging it to the public. And if that is the case, how much of that have they actually been able to use? You know, And if the UK have done that, it's quite possible that other countries around the world have done it. And it may be that, that some of the sightings that we are seeing can be explainable for by things like that but that doesn't necessarily rule out everything else so it's a really tricky area but the big questions obviously that remain are who is behind it you know and again it's not necessarily that you can have one answer to that which is going to explain every single area you have to do these things i guess on a case-by-case basis the other question is why are they flying over nuclear power stations you know and an interesting point in that article is, um, just to finish off on this, it says, local media reports quoted police as saying the drones must have been of a larger model to withstand strong winds in the area during the time of the sightings. According to Weather Underground, wind speeds were approximately 26 miles per hour with gusts as high as 43 miles per hour along the eastern Sweden uh, Swedish coast unquote so basically there were some pretty bad weather conditions in terms of wind so ordinary drones you know can pretty much be ruled out so what were those things and we'll just have to keep an eye on that why would they be over nuclear facilities just a lot of unknowns basically uh, at this point in time so we'll have to just keep an eye on that one see what ends up happening with it uh, it could be you know pranksters it could be extraterrestrial vehicles it could be adversarial drones that use some kind of amazing technology you know i think whatever comes of that is going to be very interesting you know it's even if it's just pranksters who've managed to get their hands on some uh, incredible you know professional drones and they've managed to fly over nuclear facilities uh, and and they're doing that all across the united states all across france you know in multiple different sites hundreds of miles apart even that is quite a big story i don't think that that's the most likely explanation but even that's quite a big story so one that we're going to have to keep an eye on and see how it all unfolds as time goes along but an absolutely fascinating uh, 
just concept in general that there are you know, some kind of unidentified vehicles just flying over nuclear facilities all over the world who's behind that you know at this point i don't think there's really enough evidence to say exactly who and form any hypotheses of, of as to who's behind it how they're doing it but it's definitely intriguing and we'll have to see how it develops but anybody's got some clear ideas thoughts on that drop me a message send me an email tweet at me on twitter you know at ufo thinker on twitter ufo thinker hotmail.com always great to hear from people i really try to re to reply to everybody's messages sorry if it's sometimes a little bit slow on the reply because i do get quite a lot of messages these days which is great um but yeah anyway let's move on from that then so next is something i wanted to touch on uh, regarding the uh, mick west and uh, marrick debate which has been going on so you may have seen this if you're on twitter and again if you're not uh, you probably won't have any idea that it's even been happening so there's been kind of an ongoing twitter debate going into some great detail quite heated at times between mick west who i guess needs no introduction one of the foremost kind of skeptical uh a debunker really uh, involved in the ufo topic and uh, Marrick, who is a former DOD employee and now an occasional writer for The Hill. And the thing about this saga that's been unfolding is that there's a few kind of points I wanted to make, really. So the first thing is like a, a bit of a rundown of actually the debate, what's been going on, and uh, it will be fairly a basic rundown, this, because... I think you're better off really reading through the threads if you want any detail and some of the technical stuff you know to be quite honest is is a bit over my head uh, but it's still really interesting to read through and take what what it from you can i guess but i'll try and summarize it as best i can so marrick basically had made some pretty bold statements about mick's attempts to debunk the navy videos so long-term listeners will probably remember i did a bit of a deep dive into the nimitz case uh, which is you know probably one of my proudest things i've done on the podcast i think it was about three parts about the nimitz and the tic tac and analyzing the videos and uh, whilst i was doing that i basically ended up um, inadvertently wading into a bit of a debate with mick west and uh, mick has basically to be fair to him, he's put some hours in on those videos and, and he, he claims to have debunked all three of the Navy videos. So the particular one that I was uh, digging into at the time was the rapid acceleration at the end of the FLIR video. And uh, I think it is still debatable whether or not the actual object does rapidly accelerate and there's no real consensus on it still. Um, but... I have basically arrived at a point of thinking that it did indeed rapidly accelerate and that is based on information from uh, radar operators who corroborated the alleged uh, rapid movement and they claim that they saw it shoot across the screen and also the very clear statements made by Chad Underwood who was actually filming the footage, he, he personally says uh, that it did rapidly accelerate and that it wasn't anything to do with the camera just losing lock and it appearing to accelerate. He seems to claim that it actually did accelerate and this is backed up by multiple other people who saw it on a sensor system, a radar system, where it shot across the screen rapidly so actually it did accelerate uh, rapidly. But 
that's my current conclusion but as always i'll remain open to changing my mind on it but um you know if better evidence and information comes up but anyway going back to the main point here uh, the debate seems to center on the actual gimbal video so this is not a video i've actually done a deep dive into so far but it's the famous uh it's rotating video so it appears to show an object which uh, is is rotating and apparently off camera uh, there's a whole fleet of them again these are the you know the audio clips that everybody uses uh, in podcasts and things like that videos because uh, it's quite quite amazing uh, you can see the object clearly appears to rotate and the you know that's backed up by the comments of the the pilots um so yeah the whole debate centers around the gimbal video uh, basically merrick uh, really dug into mick's claims which he says point to the object not rotating and in fact the glare just appears to rotate caused by the movement of the camera itself and the sort of disc you know top shape of the object itself is actually just a misidentification of the glare from a jet engine so that's basically mick's hypothesis now i thought that was quite unlikely anyway but as i say i'm not an expert so when it comes to these kind of things video analysis flare technology analysis i basically you know rely on the experts because i've never flown an aircraft i don't have a clue about how these systems work so what's the best thing to do wade in and start making my own uh, conclusions based on my half-baked knowledge no the best thing is to actually rely on people who really know about this stuff so Ryan Graves has said, uh, let me just get to the quote. So Ryan Graves obviously is somebody who knows about these kind of things. A former US Navy F-18 pilot. And he says, quote, people talk about it being an exhaust, which I think pretty much any pilot that spent any time looking through the FLIR is going to tell you that that's not an exhaust can. But it's great for people that are professional debunkers because it doesn't matter what the answer is. It matters if they can make it look similar to something they can recognize. That's all the work they have to do. It's kind of a lazy thing, in my opinion, unquote. And Ryan Graves, I don't have any reason to doubt his expertise and his conclusions there because, you know, I think he's a legit expert, you know, in, in that particular area. So, in conclusion there... I think the sum up of uh, Merrick's arguments is, is best described um, by a tweet that he put out the other day. It's a very, very short version, as I say. Uh, so he says, for Mick West's gimbal theory to be true, a plane with one, no transponder, must be two, perfectly aligned at three, precisely the same location as a fleet of anomalous contacts, while four, Despite meticulous maintenance, the targeting pod's glass is smudged. Impossibly unlikely. So, what he's getting at there is this plane, all planes have a transponder so they can be identified by other aircraft. This thing didn't have one. So that is very unlikely in and of itself. And also it would have had to be perfectly aligned according to the angle of the camera from the angle of observation to appear uh, as, as glare. And it would also have to be exactly at the same location as a, a fleet of anomalous objects as well. So if we're just talking about what appears in the video, you could say, I suppose, that that is some kind of reflection or glare or something, but how likely is it that that's going to happen with uh, a fleet of other anomalous objects around it and 
the object itself doesn't have a transponder and is just at the perfect angle to be seen as uh, you know for the glare to actually resemble some kind of disc or, or top shape and also uh, the mix kind of whole theory centers around the targeting pods glass being smudged and that's what causes the particular type of glare that we're seeing uh, despite them being meticulously maintained so i think marrick's got a pretty strong point there uh, that it's not really very likely so basically to sum up there i think mick west is is wrong and in all probability marrick appears to be right but again i'll always reserve my um you know my final judgment I, well there's no such thing as a final judgment you know it's about what does the evidence point to at this moment in time and i'd say that that's what it points to at this moment in time but i'll always reserve the option to change my mind completely if different information comes up you know this is what i did when i was initially looking at the the tic tac rapid acceleration video um you know i i i came to the conclusion mick west is right but once i found out that some of the other systems operators actually saw it move across a radar screen and they've come forward on the record and confirmed that is the case and chad underwood uh, when i initially did my videos chad underwood hadn't spoken publicly about this uh, and after my first or second video or something uh, sorry first or second podcast um chad underwood actually did come out through jeremy corbell and went on record to say that it did rapidly accelerate so that's different information that's the guy who filmed the actual video that was there in front of this object saw it on the FLIR camera he saw it rapidly accelerate that's a different picture to what it was initially so you always have to be willing to change your mind and i've changed my mind on the FLIR one multiple times uh, the gimbal one to be quite honest i didn't really take it that seriously because it, i don't know what i'm looking at really you know maybe it is rotating maybe it's not i don't really have the expertise to definitively say but having seen all of these threads seeing people who are um, digging into it very very deeply and they've already done deep dives on this i've now done a bit of a deep dive myself in in the research that i was doing for this episode based on the um the arguments from both sides marrick and mick west and that's enabled me to be able to actually form a basic understanding of you know what i think happened and my opinion is as i just stated i think marrick's probably right most likely is that the thing did rotate and uh Again, if you want to go into the real specific details of of uh, which, trust me, is very detailed. Um, you know, go and have a look at the threads. And to be honest with you, this for me is an example of why actually it's great to have skeptics. Because if Mick West didn't exist, then this whole debate on all these really in-depth Twitter threads would never have happened. Because the whole point is that Mick West is there saying this thing didn't rotate, and then somebody with real expert knowledge who's willing to put the time in to actually really dig into the technical details has come along, presented an argument which says, actually, Mick, you're probably wrong, and these are the reasons why. So, again, I think if it wasn't for somebody as sceptical as Mick being there, and himself, you know, to be fair to him, putting hours in, then we wouldn't have had the rebuttal and it wouldn't give us, you know, we all wouldn't have as rich of a resource to examine both sides. So again, part of the reason that I always think that skeptics are useful to include in the conversation. Now, one thing I do take exception to a little bit is the kind of the levels that the debate went to. 
Now, as you probably know, if you've seen my conduct on Twitter, I really try to refrain from slander. I never even swear on Twitter. Um, I, I never swear on the podcast as it goes. I just I don't know why, but I just decided when I first started it to just to try and be as respectful as possible, even with people I totally disagree with. And, uh, you know, I, I believe if you want to have a constructive conversation, that that's how you should do it. And uh, it just kind of, you know, I've got enough drama in my life as it is. Last thing I want to be doing is to wade into massive arguments with people on Twitter. So I think at times Marek has kind of resorted to some accusations of lying, particularly about an anonymous source which Mick quoted from uh, an interview that, that Mick himself conducted with this anonymous source. Uh, and, and I personally think it's going a bit far. I believe that the interview that was referred to by Mick did actually take place and, and Marek had basically claimed that the interview didn't take place and it was completely fabricated by Mick to back up his argument but I don't think the source was as genuine as Mick made out. I think most likely the source was probably a bit dodgy and I don't personally think that Mick lied about it. Now, again, say what you want about Mick West... I don't think he's a liar. I think he has a bias. I think he's a debunker rather than a skeptic, you know, um, which is not, sometimes veers into territory which is not good. And I think he does, whether he knows it or not, he kind of leads a bandwagon which at times has directed some pretty nasty sort of debunker trolls my way actually as, as it happens you know during the time when I was debating Mick West and any time I've had any interaction with Mick West I tend to witness a pylon of you know people diving in to slate me because I dared to question Emperor Mick West <laughs> you know what I mean uh, which is totally unnecessary because like I've never you know never slated anybody never never even said any, a bad word about Mick West I just dared to disagree with him now the important thing there Mick West never actually slated me, but Mick West will retweet something or comment on one of my posts and then, you know, cue the pile on from the unfortunate aspects of the, the, the sceptical, uh, you know, the debunker community. And um, as I say, that is a very unfortunate aspect of, you know, Mick West. And, and, but as I say, it's not necessarily directly his fault. So I don't think Mick West actually approves of that troll type behaviour and I don't think he knowingly lies but unfortunately he is tangled up in all of that situation. So the fact is we do have to be a bit careful collating the sort of behaviour of trolls who jump to Mick West's defence with his actual his personal actual behaviour because the two are different and I just don't think there's any evidence to say that the man is a liar and... Uh, I think it actually doesn't help Marrick's arguments and claims when he starts to referring to you know starts to resort to uh, referring to Mick West as a liar. You don't really need to say that the guy's a liar, you know, to in order to you know disagree with with his opinions and his hypotheses. But having said that, I you know full this full sort of disclosure. I don't know the ins and outs of the conversations that those two have had. It, at the end of the day, it's their kind of argument to have as to whether or not Mick West is a liar. And you know, even though I don't resort to those kind of things when I debate people, it's up to other people how they want to conduct themselves. So it's fair enough to Marrick. I'm not saying the guy's bang out of order, but you know, personally. 
I think it's a little bit of a shame to see accusations of being a liar and so on. Better off just focusing on the specifics of the argument. But like I say, he does do that in the majority of times. But in this particular case, uh, the, the, the lying accusations I don't think really help his cause, basically. And uh, strangely, whilst I was writing the notes to th- this podcast, um, Mick West actually replied to a tweet I was tagged in by uh, Brian Massachusetts. Uh, who's a, a regular listener of the show big supporter so thank you Brian if you're listening and uh, the, the tweet was actually regarding a case of uh, pilot uh, James Howard seeing multiple UFOs in 1954 and uh, when I saw a mixed tweet I was like oh here we go again <laughs> to be quite honest uh, but actually it just sent quite helpfully a video of the actual pilot that was involved. It was a newspaper clipping that was initially posted by uh, Brian Massachusetts. And um, what Mick did is he actually sent a, a link to a, a couple of minutes long video, uh, which was basically just the pilot at the time in all black and white footage talking about the incident, which was really quite a pleasant surprise. So you see, Mick isn't all bad, you know, he, he does his, he has his good side and you know, as I've said before, he designed Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, so we've got to cut him some slack at least for that. That was a game that I spent hours and hours on as a kid. Um, but, you know, as I said, we need all viewpoints in this topic, and I know it's frustrating sometimes with Mick West in particular or, you know, other people, but I also think it's frustrating when you see these people, possibly even more frustrating when you see people who just claim that every single light in the sky is a craft and, you know, the kind of various UFO um, accounts that are, are on Twitter that that post like really obvious pictures of a star and say that it's some kind of craft and it's star seed and all the rest of it. Uh, you know, it's there's there's frustrating elements of the UFO community on both sides, whether it's the debunking side or the the kind of um, you know the sort of naive side where they don't do the due diligence on whether or not something is a genuine anomalous object and you know obviously people that are scammers as well who just lie about things to try and get money out of other people which is you know that's just as frustrating as somebody who's hardcore debunker so you know it's all about finding that middle ground and uh i always try and just live and let live at the end of the day you know you know it's but just going back into a bit of that, that actual case, because it was really fascinating, the the object, which again, just to reiterate, a part of my knowledge of this has come from Mick West. <laughs> Thank you, Mick. You know, I'd like to see more of those constructive, uh, uh, you know, contributions to UFO Twitter rather than always the debunking stuff. You know, it's okay to have a little bit of fascination, uh, which, uh, you know, as I say, Mick definitely displayed here in this particular interaction. But yeah, so the objects basically followed the aircraft piloted by James Howard, uh, followed them 170 miles off Goose Bay, Labrador, and uh, 10 crew members and a dozen passengers saw the objects, with the pilot describing it as shape-shifting. At times it appeared to be kind of a flattened U-shape, and at other times it appeared to be a quite clear triangle. And he actually has a chalkboard in the video that Mick sent, and he actually illustrates the shapes. And it's really interesting, so if you've if you've not seen it, which I'd never seen it before this, uh, go to my Twitter and have a look, uh, and you'll be able to find it there. Or if anybody's not on Twitter, send me an email and I'll send you a link to it. But really, really interesting. 
and apparently it was accompanied by multiple small sphere type objects and it eventually sort of shrank down smaller and smaller and smaller and then disappeared and the witness conclusions were very clear uh, everybody who witnessed it all of those like i said 10 crew members and uh, um, you know multiple a dozen passengers all were pretty clear according to james howard that it had to be under intelligent control so the interesting thing about this is it was 1954 so this one definitely isn't drones you know we were talking earlier in this episode about drones and where the line is and could it be a normal subject could it be made by an adversary and so on well i'll tell you one thing for sure that one in 1954 definitely wasn't drones you know it certainly wasn't you know terrestrial drones should i say it could have been extraterrestrial drones who who knows but you know what i'm saying is those old cases there's nothing about those that could be drones because drones didn't exist weren't even going to exist for another four decades so that's why i think those old cases are very fascinating and um, the work of uh, graham rendell with the ufos before roswell you know the extremely well researched and laid out evidence for anomalous objects following um, you know bombers and, and 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 various aircraft during the uh, the war the second world war you know they definitely weren't drones because drones just didn't exist. So I thought it was a really interesting case that from, from that point of view. So moving on from that then, uh, the moon rock. I wanted to just really quickly touch on this one because um, it was uh, something I'd mentioned in a recent events episode a while ago. And the moon rock turned out to be, well a rock <laughs> so nothing too exciting on that one unfortunately i did report on this a while ago and basically it was the the chinese moon rover saw an object which appeared to be square on the moon and then obviously a lot of speculation flying around uh, and and i i basically said that i thought it's probably nothing and most likely china kind of drumming up public interest basically to stay relevant and to to make it so that they're seen to be leading in the in the space arena and you know basically ensuring that they stay in the headlines and what better way to do that than at the moment when there's such a buzz in in the in the mainstream about uh, ufos and uap what better way to do it than to suggest that they may have found something anomalous on the moon you know so that that's something that occurred to me when i first read about this and uh i can't say for sure that's what it is but you know certainly a possibility and basically yeah it turned out to be a rock so as the things got closer the moon rovers got closer and uh, they've now updated the information with a picture of a rock which is vaguely square shaped and uh nothing anomalous about it so oh well never mind um you know maybe next time but it just goes to show not to get too carried away unless we know the full picture and all of the details of a story have emerged. Um, and in this case, yeah, unfortunately, it turned out to be a bit of a damp squib, but never mind. So moving on from that, Havana Syndrome. So Havana Syndrome's in the news again and uh, something that that's I've mentioned a little bit on the podcast and actually something that I've been digging into a bit recently behind the scenes so the bbc news reports quote four more u.s diplomats working in geneva and paris have fallen ill with a suspected neurological illness known as havana syndrome as reported by u.s media three diplomats became sick in the swiss city and one in the french capital last summer with some 200 people affected over five years 
There are fears an adversary may have targeted diplomats with microwaves. Mr. Blinken said that the issue had been raised with Russia, but no determination had been made, unquote. So, I've been doing some digging on this myself, on Havana Syndrome just generally recently, and trying to investigate any links to do with UAP. You know, Lou Elizondo has sort of mentioned that, you know, I forget which interview it was because he's done so many, but he'd mentioned that there was... Uh, some kind of it seems to hint that some kind of link between Havana syndrome and UAP and that we'd be hearing more about Havana syndrome in the coming years now the fact is I've spoken with some you know what I would consider excellent sources uh, who I can't reveal unfortunately um, but you know some of the best sources that you could think of on this particular area and I'm basically hearing info which backs up the points that have been mentioned in the recent vice article featuring gary nolan um which stated that havana syndrome has links to some kind of state actor now i really don't want to go into it too much into too much detail um like i say i've been told uh, from some excellent sources information that backs that up but i don't really want to get into it in too much but i'm hearing that it's a that it's a state actor that's responsible for this and that it's not uh you know a uap issue as such even though there may be some connection which is pretty worrying really i mean what type of weapon could that actually be you know who could be using that and why you know if it turns out to be russia that surely is is an act of war, isn't it? Like if you if you've got some kind of weapon that can remotely direct like an energy beam or something and attack uh, adversarial diplomats, you know, isn't that an act of war? You're literally attacking somebody who's an American citizen. So I'm not really sure at this point what is less or more scary. If unidentified aerial phenomenon are causing this uh, this Havana syndrome or if it's an adversary based on this earth you know what what do you think as uh, you guys listening do you think it's scarier if if havana syndrome is being caused by you know extraterrestrials essentially or do you think it's scarier if that's actually by somebody on this earth who who's got this technology who can who, who can do these types of things i don't really know what's scarier the havana syndrome thing certainly seems to be kind of crosses over a line into pol world politics and things where i don't really want to go into i mean this is a, a ufo podcast at the end of the day it's all about you know things to do with ufos and whilst there does seem to be some kind of links there between ufos and, and havana syndrome i think for the most part from what i've been able to find out so far it's actually more of a uh, an adversarial uh, issue rather than specifically something to do with you know ufos actually causing this but it's a little bit like i said earlier on in terms of drones you know could it be possible that you know the havana syndrome itself is a technology possessed by an adversary on this planet which has actually 
in and of itself been reverse engineered from some kind of unidentified aerial phenomenon so that could be multiple things it could be that some kind of um you know actual craft has been retrieved an off-world craft and they've been able to um you know an adversary has been able to uh, reverse engineer some aspects of that technology and turn it into some kind of directed energy weapon it could possibly be that uh like i said earlier there's multiple phenomena at work here and some kind of atmospheric plasma um, anomaly has been studied by an adversary and they've managed to weaponize that you know and again that's not to say if that is the case that also there could be you know other you know extraterrestrial craft as well it's if there are some kind of unexplained plasma phenomenon you know happening that doesn't automatically mean that there are also no nuts and bolts craft you know the two things could be one and the same it could even be that the atmospheric phenomenon that are being witnessed the kind of plasma weird plasma anomalies could even be some kind of side effects of an actual extraterrestrial craft you know there's so much about this stuff that we don't understand and uh it kind of links in with something i've been thinking about recently as well which is an area that has been bugging me a bit to do with the ufo phenomenon and it's if you think about how old the universe actually is the chances of us coming across or interacting or you know them coming across us in terms of finding a civilization that's on a similar level of development to us and when i say similar you've got to remember that you know even 200 years ago think about what our level of technology was 200 years ago i mean it was just nothing compared to what we have now you know it was absolute chalk and cheese so the chances of us finding another similar similar level civilization to ourselves out there in the universe whether they stumble across us or we stumble across them it really is starting to seem less and less likely that they would be you know anywhere near the same kind of level of development as us I mean, it's safe to say that if they are less developed than us, they're not going to be coming here in craft. So even if they were at the same level as us 100 or 200 years ago, they would have absolutely no way that they'd be able to get here. So they have to be more advanced than us. If we're talking about extraterrestrials traveling here uh, from somewhere else in the galaxy or somewhere else in the universe, um, or even if they're coming from some kind of other dimension, or even if they're actually based here on the Earth, or they've got a base on the Moon, or whatever particular theory you subscribe to, it's pretty unlikely that they're going to be only a bit more advanced than us, basically is my point. It's much more likely that they may be a million years more advanced than us. And if that's the case, I mean, it's... It, it, the thing that hit me is the futility of trying to understand the technology that could be a million years more advanced than us because i mean if we're talking the grand you know the vastness of of time you know it's very possible that a civilization could have reached the level that we are now ten thousand years ago a hundred million years ago and and if that is the case and and the technology you know developed and developed and developed bearing in mind how far we've come in the last 200 years imagine where we're going to be in another 200,000 years or a million years i mean it, technology would just be as as you know jacques valet and many others have, have sort of said the technology would be indistinguishable from magic you know so it kind of occurred to me that you know 
maybe it's just totally futile to actually understand maybe it literally is you know like the old analogy of an ant's nest you know if we see an ant's nest we might look at it for a little bit we might even drop a sweet into an ant's nest for them to swarm all over and eat the sugar but the ants don't have a clue what that sugar is they don't understand the. you know everybody's done that as a kid if you see an ant's nest and you're eating sweets you put a, a sweet there and all the ants swarm all over it some of them get stuck to it and, and end up probably dying in the sugar uh you know and some of them take bits of that sugar and take it back into the nest and use it and 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 that analogy when you think about it you know it could be possible that you know we talk about gifting and all the rest of it it could literally be a case of dropping a sweet into the ant's nest you know they don't we don't really care if you drop a boiled sweet into the ant's nest and some of the ants die in the sticky sugar you know we just do it out of curiosity because we're so so advanced compared to them in terms of our consciousness you know, or at least we think we are. Maybe there's something else going on with ants that we, we that we've not discovered yet, and they're actually amazingly intelligent. But you know what I mean? It's like you couldn't explain to an ant, look, this little sugary sweet that I'm dropping in. We made it using a factory and a com- you know a combination of gelatin and sugar, and you know just watch out because it's a bit sticky. If you get too close to it, you might die. There's no point trying to have that conversation with an ant. You know, and when we talk about all of these technologies you know we could be looking at multiple different uh you know extraterrestrial civilizations some of them are a million years advanced and some of them are are only ten thousand years advanced and some of them may be a hundred million or a billion years more advanced than us you know and again you know the the vastness of time the sheer size of the universe and, and how many civilizations could potentially be out there it seems to stand to reason that some of them would be millions of years more advanced than us. And if that's the case, how are we ever going to get our head around that? It just seems, you know, it, wouldn't it just be curiosity that, that that leads them here to have a look at us the same way as we'd look at an ant's nest? Are they indeed just dropping a sweet in just to see what we do, just out of interest? You know, it's, it's just a, it's such a vast area uh, to, to think about. You know how how could we possibly understand the technology that's a million years more advanced than us, and and that's why I don't re- necessarily resonate with this gifting hypothesis. You know, people have mentioned that maybe craft aren't actually coming here uh, and, and and crashing. Maybe they're actually crashing on purpose to actually gift us technology, but it, that that's never really clicked with me that particular hypothesis because, you know how if they are indeed a million years more advanced than us there's nothing we could do with that technology we couldn't even begin to understand it i mean things would be so different in a million years that we would have no use for it in the same way that an ant's nest would have no use for a sweet you know we'd just go up to it and accidentally kill ourselves trying to investigate the thing you know it's which i suppose you know could be the case but the concept of gifting just doesn't really make sense with a civilization that is so advanced unless they specifically manufacture something which is only a little bit more advanced than where we are now but is only a tiny percentage of what they actually have i suppose if you look at it from that point of view perhaps it could be more likely but i don't know i don't know it's it's just some speculation there i thought i'd uh, throw in there uh, just in case anybody finds it interesting but as i say you know the the big thing that i've been pondering uh, is is how 
how could we possibly understand something that is that advanced and and how likely actually is it which is probably something i'll try and dig into and actually do some you know basic calculations you know as best as i can do um being a, a layman you know as such how likely is it that if there was a civilization out there that they would be within a few thousand years of us you know to me it just seems unbelievably unlikely that a civilization would be roughly the same level of development as us and even a thousand years as we know based on the way we've progressed over the last 100 or 200 years a thousand years from now everything will be absolutely unrecognizable so and a thousand years in the in the vastness of time in the vastness of the universe a thousand years is just nothing you know it's just a a tiny speck you know compared to the vastness of time so the chances of another civilization falling into that exact bracket where they're on a similar level to us i.e within a couple of thousand years is really slim and and if that's the case you know it could be that like i said a million years 10 million years 500 million years and then by the time you get to that stage we're looking at the difference between a human and an ant you know in terms of the level of of technological development and consciousness development and you know it would be futile to even try to communicate or to try and share any technology you know uh, when you're looking at that kind of a level of difference anyway it'd be interesting to hear some thoughts on that if anybody's got some uh, bits to add uh, as i say something that i'm definitely going to keep looking into and i uh, hope you've enjoyed uh, this bit of a roundup here of the uh, recent events so got a couple of good interviews coming up uh, over the next couple of weeks and obviously i'll keep going with these recent events ones as well uh, sorry by the way if you hear this noise occasionally i've got a really squeaky chair which is super annoying i never even noticed it until i started doing podcasts but um i've just not got around to getting one of the quite expensive uh new chairs so if you do hear that noise now and again i can only apologize it adds a little bit of character perhaps you know think of it that way um but uh, thanks to everyone who supports the podcast on patreon because you guys really really help there are definitely uh, costs associated with running a podcast and, and the, a serious amount of time goes into some of these episodes so I really appreciate the, the, those people who choose to support on Patreon. And uh, just for anybody who's not aware, you can support the podcast on patreon.com. There's a link in the description of the episode. And if you do choose to do that, as I say, it really helps the podcast. And also on top of that, you get early access to every episode as well, or near enough every episode. Sometimes they just go straight up, but most times they're at least a day, sometimes a couple of days early. So you get to listen to them before they go out everywhere else. Um, also if you do reach out on patreon as well uh, i'll always respond to to patreon messages and things so it's a good way of, of getting in touch if you, if you did want to uh, to do that so as i said big thanks to everybody who who does support uh, it is very much appreciated uh, and also just kind of on that topic before we finish for today's episode uh, if you're listening through to this point in the uh, in the episode you are obviously a, a hardcore listener of the podcast so thank you very much for being here through to the end it obviously means you enjoy listening so thank you and it's a pleasure to have you here <laughs> but uh, one thing i don't really understand to be quite honest i'm not exactly of the older generation or anything like that but 
I'm definitely not Gen Z or whatever they call it. So uh, there's certain things about these new tech platforms that I don't really understand and algorithms and all this kind of stuff. I'm only just getting my head round. Um, probably a bit of a Luddite really, but it is what it is. Um, so I didn't actually realise why people always say, can you leave a review for the podcast? But apparently it has to do with these algorithms. So if your podcast has no reviews, it doesn't pop up on other people's recommendations and feeds and stuff. So apparently... It really helps to kind of get the word out if you leave reviews for the podcast, which I think if you leave a five-star review on you know Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whatever you listen to your podcasts on, it just really helps to kind of boost up the podcast and uh, you know kind of get new people interested. And you know the more I do this, the more I realise that people actually get into the UFO topic from listening to this podcast. So I get a lot of messages from people saying, "Oh, I never realised there was this much to it." You know, I was never interested in UFOs but now I've been listening I realise that there is so you know the more the merrier and you know I don't say this very often but if you do get a chance to to leave the podcast a five star review on whatever platform you listen it, it apparently really does help to uh, spread awareness of the podcast and I actually didn't even realise you could leave reviews on Spotify but um, I just happened to look on there the other day on the podcast page and I think about 15-20 people have left reviews already five star reviews which is like baffling because I've never even asked anybody so if you did leave a review thank you very much because i mean that was amazing to see even the thought that somebody would leave a five-star review on my podcast is quite mind-blowing to be honest with you so big thank you and thank you to everybody who shares on twitter and tells a friend about the podcast because at the end of the day we're all in the same boat we're all fascinated by this topic we're all trying to get some answers and the more people that are engaged in the topic the more chance we've got of that happening so big thank you to everyone who supports and uh, uh until next time Stay curious, take it easy, and I'll catch you in the next episode. UFO Podcast.